the bad press that you occasionally start to see for these vendors is only going to get worse. Hide your kids. Lock the doors. You're listening to HR's most dangerous podcast. Chad Sowash and Joel Cheeseman are here to punch the recruiting industry right where it hurts. Complete with breaking news, brash opinion, and loads of snark. Buckle up, boys and girls. It's time for the Chad and Cheese Podcast. Oh, yeah. What's up, everybody? It's your favorite guilty pleasure, the Chad and Cheese Podcast. I'm your co-host, Joel Cheeseman. Joined, as always, the Robin to my Batman, Chad Sowash. And today we are, man, super excited to welcome Matt Scherer, Senior Policy Counsel for Workers' Rights and Technology Policy at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Wow. Oh, that's a mouthful. Uh, another example of someone way smarter than us on the show. Matt has a, <laughs> uh, a JD from Georgetown. Matt, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. We'll see about the smarter part. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're you're still here on the show, so I'm not quite sure you are that smart. But uh, what? Let our listeners get to know a little bit about Matt. Uh, what makes you tick, man? Give us a Twitter bio. As my lengthy job title kind of suggests, I work at the intersection of the workplace and technology. I started off as an employment lawyer who kind of did AI-related stuff as a side hustle. I found a way to combine the two by doing a lot of AI-related legal work on employment at Littler Mendelssohn, which is, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, the world's largest... Uh, labor and employment law firm, but they're exclusively management side. Yeah. Um, and then I decided to make the jump over to civil society and take up the mantle of workers' rights on these issues. And that was about a year and a half ago when I joined CDT um, and uh, left the billable hour and the big <laughs> law firm life behind. Um if you've seen Michael Clayton, uh-huh. that is not what my life is like. But uh, <laughs> was like back then. But um, I do enjoy civil society uh, and my work at CDT much more. I have to say, well, that's 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 good. I'm sure the paycheck's a little bit different, but hey, you know, we all do things for 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 different reasons. And that reason, I would like to know why why get into the the, the swamp of hiring technology. I mean, it is it is really a swamp out there. We talk about politics being a swamp, but this is this is entirely different. I, w- I would call it more the Wild West than the sw- than a swamp. That's how it, it's always felt to me. It, and, and that's kind of the case with a lot of stuff whenever you're talking about artificial intelligence and automated systems. Mm-hmm. The way I always describe it, our entire legal system is is kind of premised on the idea that humans are the ones who make important decisions. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, it just if you if you read enough of our laws, you start to understand just how deeply that's baked in. One of my favorite examples is even just with driverless cars. If you read the highway safety transportation regulations, they have all these things like, oh, yeah, well, when you build a car, you have to have a foot operated brake. And, you know, so the idea that there is something without a foot that could be operating a car would, you know, just didn't occur to anybody at the time that these regulations were made. Yeah. So, and it's no different than that in the world of HR. If anything, it's even more kind of wide open and unclear how automated systems fit into the existing laws that, that, that happen there. So it's the wild west really. 
Exactly. That, and that's my preferred metaphor is it's the Wild West. And that kind of vacuum I just find fascinating um, and troubling. Yes. For how long will it be the Wild West? Are we talking decades? Are we talking years? Your guess is as good as mine. Um, I, I think that we're going to see some state level regulations mm-hmm. um, starting to happen in the next few years. Mm-hmm. Whether or not there are federal regulations, whether in the form of new EEOC guidelines or a federal statute, that's really tough to predict. And certainly federal legislation, I don't expect to be happening anytime soon, which means that we're probably going to have a kind of balkanized system of how these hiring tools and other uses of AI in the workplace are treated on a state by state basis. Gotcha. Gotcha. So so back to that point, back in November, you penned an article entitled New York City Council Rams Through Once Promising But Deeply Flawed Bill on AI Hiring Tools. How did that start out? Because it sounds like it was promising at one time and then it wasn't. And, and it sounds like we're going to see more of this state by state, uh, somewhat promising, not so promising regulation actually happening. I think that's right. And and first, let me just quickly correct the record. It was co-authored by me and my colleague, Riddy Shetty. Mm-hmm. Riddy and I are always kind of each other's sidekicks on these sorts of projects at CDT. Um, so, But that piece we put together in about 48 hours after the New York City bill got passed. Mm-hmm. And uh, for both of us, it was a lot of rage writing. Um, <laughs> and uh, the, the reason is that the bill did start off Certainly not as perfect. Um, and that's why we use the word promising. But, you know, th- th- there were definitely good aspects to it. The The big thing is, as originally written, just when you come down to the substance of it, it would have required companies to examine the potential for all forms of discrimination before they uh, released a hiring tool. If they did not do so, there were actually some teeth in the bill, not the strongest teeth, kind of more like heavily worn off 85-year-old dentures, maybe more than uh, than <laughs> you know, sharp incisors. But there were at least some teeth to the bill, some consequences for companies that didn't do those sorts of in-depth examinations for discrimination. The bill that got ultimately rammed through, and it really was rammed through, and we can talk about that in a second, mm-hmm. it stripped away the you have to check for all forms of discrimination. And they did it in a kind of a coy, subtle way. It, that, that if you read the bill, you can't even tell what's going on. But what they ended up doing is they're just saying, all you have to do is check for adverse impact on race, sex, and national origin. And here's the thing, you already have to do that under federal law. And in fact, you have to do that and other stuff under federal law. Right. So it ended up actually setting the bar lower than what already existed under federal law in terms of employers' obligations. And then it took away any teeth or consequences, really, that would ensue if you failed to do that. It was promising initially, and it ended up being, frankly, a joke that introduced no meaningful new obligations on employers. So how did that happen? I mean, how how did it get derailed and how were some of those aspects dropped so that it was pretty much teeth-free? We are not the NSA. We did not have uh, bugs planted <laughs> on the inside of the New York City Council building. Sometimes I wish we were, but um, <laughs> but we were not in this instance. So we don't okay. know for sure. Okay. 
But the bill, it is no secret that the bill was originally drafted and backed by Pymetrics, um, which is one of the big vendors in this space. Yes. And that it was largely a big, it, it was largely a vendor backed proposition. And there has been a trend uh, nationally for vendors to back these bills. But unlike a lot of kind of industry backed bills in other spaces, they often go to progressive legislators mm-hmm. and build themselves as, hey, we are the pro-civil rights, progressive folks in this space. And what we are asking you to do is help us regulate ourselves. We're the good guys. Help us help us be the good guys. <laughs> yes. So even though I don't know what happened behind the scenes, I think that it is safe to say that the vendors who had their hand in at the beginning also had their hand in the watering down of the bill before it got to final passage. I mean, if they can write it, then then they know what they want to the outcome of it, right? So it's like the fox in the hen house. Yeah. That's exactly right. And also the way that it happened, where the revised version of the bill was released essentially publicly less than 24 hours before it was put before a committee vote. Uh-huh. Without a hearing, the revisions were never put for a public hearing. And within 24 hours of their publication, it had gone through a committee hearing, committee vote, and passage by the full council, all in 24 hours. No opportunity for public input. <laughs> wow. That sort of coordinated, you could almost call it ambush, um, doesn't happen without some significant behind the scenes coordination. Um, So even though I don't know exactly how it happened, it's safe to say that this was done in a way to ensure that a more vendor friendly version of the bill was passed without any meaningful opportunity for pushback from groups that would have concerns about the changes. So Pymetrics is not Google. They're not, you know, meta. Uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't put them in the category of an army of lobbyists that can go to the government and make sort of these efforts. So what, from your perspective is, I mean, is it like a secret war chest that we don't know about or no, no, no. And the way that I always describe it is everybody's the hero in their own story. And I have no doubt that the vendors in this space, and in fact, having had conversations with them off the record, Uh they genuinely view themselves as the good guys. They think that they have found a fairer, less discriminatory way to do things. I think that if you take the humans out of the hiring process and give it to their machines, that you end up with a fairer, less discriminatory, and more effective hiring process. I think that that's a load of something, (laughs) but um, (laughs) that is their view. And what I think happened is that message that, hey, we live in a discriminatory system well, that, that, that initial premise is something that's going to get a lot of progressive heads nodding because it's true. We do live in, in, in a system yeah. where hiring is rife with discrimination, both overt, covert, systemic at every level. The, the idea that there is a better way to do things is inherently appealing. And the idea that it can't get any worse doesn't often cross people's minds when they see the many flaws that exist in the current system. I just think that they are successful in what I would frankly call co-opting progressive legislators because they tell those legislators what they want to hear, which is there's a way to dis- to help reduce the impacts of systemic discrimination 
and these long existing patterns of bias. And, and that's just not the case in reality. Yeah. I mean, we've seen vendors write regulations for years and hand it over to, uh, you know, their progressive counterparts or their conservative counterparts. In my research on this uh, AI audits, there are no standards. You meant back to the Wild West. So there, there really are no sort of here's the baseline for what AI is and what it should be and shouldn't be. Is that correct? Like, what are your takes on AI audits? What's wrong with them? I know Pymetrics, HireVue, and Humanly have been sort of uh, highlighted in articles around the, the audit system and, and those companies being audited, but there are no standards for what makes good AI. Right. And I would not call on their best day what any of those vendors have done in audit. Audit implies some sort of unbiased, driven by an independent source review of information, when in reality, all of the audits that these companies have conducted, they gave highly curated and limited information and a limited scope to these auditors to do the review. And just like the New York City bill, what happened was a joke. Um, None of them were audits. Which goes to your point that there's no standards for what it means to have an audit in this space um, for AI tools. There are regulations, as I'm sure you and many of your listeners know, when it comes to selection procedures more generally. They're called the Uniform Guidelines for Employee Selection Procedures. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to say that those are a dead letter, uh, but other than the OFCCP, they are not often used as the basis for strong enforcement action. And even with the OFCCP, their resources are stretched so thin that even federal contractors, which is who the OFCCP governs, Mm -hmm. don't often have to get pinned down on kind of the specifics of the sorts of auditing processes that, that are supposed to happen before they introduce a tool. And when it comes to kind of the unique characteristics of AI, Mm -hmm. it actually makes the uniform guidelines inadequate to really deal with some of the types of discrimination and the types of harm that can arise. So the uniform guidelines are themselves, they're there, they're better than nothing, but they're not adequate to the task. And yeah, right now there are no standards that say this is what a good audit of a modern hiring tool should look like. Gotcha. And again, if you don't have the enforcement, then you really don't have the teeth. Uh, But when we take a look at uh, actual, let's just say OFCCP audits, when they do go through the audits and uh, there are standards that they have. uh, Now, wouldn't those standards still be the same no matter whether it was a machine or a human, because it's all around outcomes and uh, how you treated the actual candidate pool. So wouldn't they still be usable for AI as as they are today with humans? Yes. And, and again, in, in my view, if the, if the uniform guidelines were interpreted and enforced consistently, that would be a good thing. It wouldn't yes. be enough, but it would be enough to, I think, significantly limit the ability of these tools to be deployed as extensively as companies are at this point. Mm-hmm. And I also agree we shouldn't necessarily hold these tools to a special standard that doesn't apply to more traditional types of hiring tests. There are plenty of problematic mm-hmm. and concerning non-AI-based selection tools out there. Companies' frequent use of personality tests, that is deeply troubling. Yes. 
some of my colleagues at CDT and at other civil rights organizations have done plenty of work on this. You know, there's the, those very frequently discriminate against people with disabilities. There's lots of evidence that they discriminate against yes. uh, black candidates, mm-hmm. uh, female candidates, etc. So just because it's not AI doesn't mean that it should get a free pass or it should be held to a lower standard necessarily. Gotcha. But the uniform guidelines were written 50 years ago now. You know, they they went into force about 45 years ago, but they were actually written in the early 1970s. God, they are they were out of date sometime around the time I was born in the Reagan administration. (laughs) You know, like so uh, they are dramatically out of step with with the modern social science. And one of the ways in which they are, this is the most technical I'll get in this in, in this podcast they allow you to establish that a tool is basically okay to use by showing that there's a correlation between the tool's recommendations or scores mm-hmm. and job performance. The problem is it's incredibly easy to establish that sort of correlation when you're putting thousands of candidates through a tool, which is what you can do in the age of big data. That's not something you could do back in the 70s and 80s when you were developing and testing these tools. It wasn't easy to establish that kind of correlation. Mm -hmm. Now it is. So you can have these tools that do, frankly, a pretty crappy job of matching candidates to job performance, but you can claim, well, the uniform guidelines say as long as you can show that there's a correlation, that's enough. And technically, there's a correlation. It's a very it's a very weak correlation, but it's a correlation. Yeah, that is no longer that would no longer be possible under modern social science. But because the uniform guidelines were not written with modern social science, um, a lot of these tools, you know, I've read validation reports for these that, you know, to be clear, uh, in case anybody from my old job is listening, these are not ones that I'm talking about that are covered by attorney-client privilege. Don't worry. (laughs) Um, But I've read validation reports even since I've come to CDT where some of these tools do, I kid you not, uh, 2% better than randomly picking names out of a hat uh, in terms of picking good candidates for a job. And that's on a validation study. And that's from their own validation studies. Yeah. Um, 2% better than picking names out of a hat. But that's enough, technically, <laughs> under the uniform guidelines. Right. Um, because it's it's a statistically significant 2% better than names out of a hat. So um, that's kind of the reason that new guidelines and new audit standards are needed in this space. Greetings from Evergreen Podcasts. We're rolling out a listener survey, and we want to hear from you. The information in the survey will help us gather statistics and in turn make our shows more appealing to advertisers. I know most people don't like ads, but this is one of the only ways our shows make money and help keep their lights on. We promise it will only take a few minutes, but the impact on our podcasts will be tremendous. As a token of our appreciation, we'll randomly select one lucky participant each month to win an exclusive merchandise package from Evergreen Podcasts. Head to evergreenpodcast.com slash listener survey to help a show and possibly get some free stuff for doing so. We can't thank you enough for the support. Now back to the show. Oh, hell yeah. You see vendors like Pymetrics get in front of legislation or regulation or what have you as being a part of it or writing it. What about Higher views AI, AI explainability statement. They're trying to get in front of this by going public, 
putting it out there for everybody and actually having a quote unquote explainability statement. Have you seen this thing? I have and uh, stay tuned on CDT's website. There'll be a blog post dropping about that at some Ooh. point <laughs> in the next few weeks. Um, so this comes from uh, the actual document, quote, since HireVue's platform does not make recruitment decisions, if the candidate wishes to query the decision-making in the recruitment process, then the challenge needs to be made to the hiring company, which uses HireVue's platform and ultimately makes the final recruitment decision End quote. So what they're saying is, look, we don't make the decisions. This has nothing to do with us, but yet they have algorithms. And then in California, they're looking to put new regulations on the books that pretty much puts the keeps the vendor on the hook around training data. So again, we were just talking about New York. Now we're talking about California. Where do you see this actually going? Because I feel like there are going to be vendors that are on the hook. And if California or New York does something like this, every vendor wants to do business in those states. They're going to have to comply, right? Right. Well, first off, I love that particular passage that you quoted from their explainability statement, which was a punt that would have made Ray Guy jealous. So, I mean, <laughs> uh, and that, that sort of, hey, it's not me, it's them that you see between vendors and employers in this space. Mm -hmm. The first thing that I think you should do when you do regulations is you should take away their ability to do that by saying that they're jointly responsible for ensuring that it is. And that, sure, you can make a contract that says who actually has to pay at the end of the day, but you're both on the hook. And then you can sort out later between yourselves who gets to pay if you do something wrong. That's my take. Having had conversations with civil rights organizations in this space, that finger pointing, which we've seen a lot already in Europe, that was the purpose of that passage that you read in the higher view explainability statement. It was saying under European law, we are not the data controller. I think that that's the term of art. I might be getting it wrong, but we're not the people you should talk to. It's the employer. Yes. That sort of finger pointing we need to avoid here if and when these regulations start getting passed in the United States. And the way to do that is to say, you're both responsible. You can't simply point the finger at the other. It doesn't do you any good. You're still on the hook. Um, and then if you know you end up being liable down the road, who actually has to pay between the two of you? That's a matter for you to sort between yourselves, but you're both on the hook for it. So I, I think that the regulations need to be aimed at both so that both have a, an incentive to police each other and to ensure that the proper validation and uh, discrimination checks are done. Matt, we have a lot of employers, as I'm sure you can imagine, that listen to our show. And in addition to our show and everything else that they're hearing, every conference they go to, they're hearing AI is great. AI is going to solve all your problems. AI is something you need to buy immediately. And then they also read about Amazon, you know, ditching their sort of AI uh, recruitment technology. They're hearing about these court cases. What tips would you give an employer that's looking to buy an AI solution in terms of what to be careful for? Maybe what questions to ask a vendor to help protect yourself? Because I think there's a lot of fear out there uh, and, and fear often breeds sort of inactivity, which isn't necessarily what a good employer should do. What tips would you give them to, to do it safely and, and to do it correctly and keep yourself out of court? For sure. Uh, the first thing is to have more faith in your HR team than the vendors want you to have. <laughs> and I admit I'm biased. My mother was and is a career HR person. 
um, I'm I'm somewhat predisposed to not throwing HR people under the bus, <laughs> needless to say. <laughs> um, but I, you know, genuinely, yes, human decision making is flawed. That does not mean that we've come up with a better way to do things, though. And I'll get to the here's what you should do as far as specific questions. But just to give one example of why automating the process is not necessarily a good idea. One thing that these vendors love to do is say, well, yes, our, whatever problems you might identify in our problems, yes, they might be there, but humans do it even worse. That is very frequently the response you get when <laughs> vendors try to sell these tools to companies. Uh-huh. And one great example of that is the, a technology that underpins a lot of, of AI is voice-to-text transcription, VTT, or speech-to-text, where a computer hears, as it were, what a candidate is saying during an interview, during some, you know, some sort of game-based assessment, et cetera, and it transcribes what they're saying. And the error rates on those transcriptions are sometimes, you know, relatively high, and they are much higher in particular for candidates that have a disability that affects their speech or who have an accent because they speak English as a second language or they speak a non-standard English dialect. Right. Well, these companies often say, well, yes, we have an, there's sometimes a high error rate, but so do humans. Here's the difference. If a human doesn't understand what a candidate just said, they can say, oh, I'm sorry, can you repeat that? (laughs) You know, like that's the difference between a human and a machine. Right. Or that's one difference is that a human has the ability to slow down and go at things a different way and adjust on the fly in a way that an automated one-size-fits-all assessment, which is what these vendors invariably are selling, does not. And that is a dangerous thing to introduce into an HR process, to have that kind of rigid one-size-fits-all, there's no second chance. If you want an accommodation, the accommodation is you don't use this process and you do something completely different. And that's often what these vendors are selling. And if that sort of inflexible tool is what's being presented to a company, they should be very, very careful before proceeding because that sort of rigidity is just not going to have the flexibility that's needed to fill a lot of positions because positions are not one size fits all like that. They should ask the vendor what steps they've taken to ensure that if candidates whose credentials are not obvious uh, or who have difficulty showing in the context of whether it's a resume screener, a game-based assessment, a video interview, whatever it is, if a candidate has either a disability or some other aspect of their physical Uh, of their physical makeup, of their background, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. that might make the tool less familiar with what it is they have to offer. How's the tool going to pick up on that? And how will our recruiters know that they need to look more carefully or deeper? Those are the sorts of questions they should be asking first and foremost. And they should carefully pay attention to what the response is and make sure it's not just well, that's, uh, you know, something that we don't do. That's your recruiter's job to pick up on that. Well, if that's their answer, then guess what? Why do you need the tool in the first place? Yeah. We, in addition to employers, we have a lot of vendors uh, that listen to our show. Um, and it sounds like a lot of uh, mistakes have been made in terms of, of their end. And, and personally, I don't think that there's a lot of 
evildoers in the vendor space. I think it's a lot of people that, you know, have a quote unquote good idea. They build this thing and then they don't sort of see the the sides of it that you do. If you could say something to the vendors out there that are looking to build something new or, or to do, do something cool around AI, what kind of things would you caution them to build before they spend the time and money uh, to make a new feature in their product? Uh, the first thing that I do is I'd ask them to proactively engage with groups that they don't want to engage with <laughs> as they develop these tools um, with civil rights organizations um, and particularly uh, a major area of focus for my organization is uh, the rights of disabled people and disabled workers. That is, frankly, an area where these vendors get one of the worst failing scores I can possibly imagine for them. They just do not design their tools with disability and the need for accommodation in mind. They like to think they do, but they they do not. You you are correct. Yeah, they they do not. And frankly, the answers that they give of, of how they try to build robustness into it, they're, they're, they make disability advocates angry. Uh, it's things like, well, um, we had five different people with disabilities tested and they did okay. Or we <laughs> talked to the parents of disabled people and they liked our approach. Never mind that parents, uh, parental organizations relating to people with disabilities are very much not the same as talking to the disabled people themselves. Right. Well, if there is an accommodation issue, that's ultimately the employer's responsibility, not ours. All of those are inadequate responses in my view. So that's the first thing. And then they should take a similar approach when it comes to racial justice, when it comes to uh, gender disparities in these tools. Don't just try to paper over these issues. Instead, um, engage with these civil rights organizations. And instead of having your own in-house what you want to pass off as an audit where you provide carefully curated information, mm -hmm. um, have it done by somebody who actually has an incentive to uh, check to make sure that issues that actually are present get resolved. If you're not willing to do that, then there's frankly going to continue to be an adversarial relationship between vendors and civil rights organizations. The bad press that you occasionally start to see for these vendors is only going to get worse. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to hit the other side. The, the candidate black hole has been the bane of the application process for candidates uh, and the easy apply process that has been created in that time frame uh, has provided more candidates applying quicker for jobs, thus finding more candidates in this incredibly horrible black hole right? Where they don't have anybody getting back with them uh, because it's more of a human experience. They're using technology, but there's nothing that's actually automated around it. It's horrible for the brand because all of these candidates could be customers too, but they could also be great candidates that they just can't get back to because they're human and they aren't as scalable. So today, tech is trying to actually fill that gap to provide a much better candidate experience, to be able to get back to those individuals uh, and to be able to, in some cases, sift through them and see if they score well. My question for you is, where's the equilibrium? Because as technology starts to grow, Moore's law is, is, is still rolling strong. We're going to have technology pushing forward and just jamming great candidates into a system that human beings can never get back to them with. So how do we how do we fix this? Where's equilibrium? So I think that the way that I always described, and this was the case even back when I was in private practice, 
the best way to use technology in this space is to increase the number of candidates who come under consideration for a job and to increase Mm -hmm. the number of people who get serious consideration for it rather than to contract it. It should be used to identify and lift up candidates who may otherwise be overlooked, not to screen candidates out who um, may otherwise have gotten serious consideration. That's the way that I always try to frame it. The problem is, and this is why the, the equilibrium... The equilibrium that I suggest is one that does not lie easily. The goals of CISO, <laughs> um, where HR is often viewed as purely a cost center, or really a cost sink. Mm-hmm. It doesn't generate revenue. So every dollar that is spent on HR by C-suite, as again, many of your listeners, I'm sure know, is viewed as a dollar that should be saved if, if possible. So... The approach that I suggest of expanding the number of candidates that are considered for positions, that's the opposite of what vendors try to sell. The vendors try to sell you on, we're going to cut costs. We're going to reduce the number of candidates that your recruiters have to review. The problem is when you are doing that, you are increasing your risk of discrimination and you are, frankly, from a business perspective, you're, you're lowering the chances that you will find candidates that are the best fit for your position. You are increasing the, the, the likelihood that you will find a at least adequate candidate quickly, but you may be overlooking the best candidates for a role. If you're okay with that, then maybe the use of an automated process makes sense on some level. But you have to understand, again, the costs associated with the risk of discrimination. Where I think the equilibrium is ultimately going to lie depends on where regulation in this space goes. I would say that we are headed for a world where there is going to eventually be regulation of these tools. We are not in an environment that is friendly to technology on the policy world right now, if you haven't noticed. So there will be regulation eventually. And this is a rare instance where the you know conservatives are skeptical of big tech companies. And in the specific case of HR tools, um, civil rights groups are very, very skeptical of the technology. Civil rights groups are not convinced by the arguments that human bias as it exists now is a sufficient reason to not regulate these tools. It's time to tame the wild, wild west. I think that that's exactly right. And I think that it eventually will be. And the equilibrium that I hope we ultimately reach is the one that I just described, where technology is used to help us find diamonds in the rough, to help us find the people that were often overlooked in the past, and to expand the number of people, to expand the possibilities for people in the labor market, not to contract. Matt Share, everybody. Matt, that was awesome, dude. Uh, for those listeners who want to know about, more about you or the organization, where would you send them? CDT.org. Um, you can find I'm on our privacy and data team and uh, keep an eye out for a lot of future work in this space on this. And then on uh, the other major issue we work on is technology used for surveillance and privacy in the workplace. Yeah. Let us know when that blog post goes up. We might have to have you back on the show for a little summary of that. Hell yeah. All right, Chad, another one in the books. We're all a little bit smarter. Thanks to Matt. We out. We out. Thank you for listening to what's it called? The podcast. The Chad. The cheese. Brilliant.
They talk about recruiting. They talk about technology. But most of all, they talk about nothing. Just a lot of shout-outs of people you don't even know. And yet, you're listening. It's incredible. And not one word about cheese. Not one. Cheddar. Blue. Nacho. Pepper Jack. Swiss. There's so many cheeses and not one word. So weird. Anywho, be sure to subscribe today on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. That way, you won't miss an episode. And while you're at it, visit www.chatcheese.com. Just don't expect to find any recipes for grilled cheese. It's so weird. We out! How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transform, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.